thank you. Thank you for this time to spend this morning on a Friday. Just to start the day off right and worship and praise to you. Fellowship with one another. Getting into each other's lives and bearing each other's burdens, loving each other, and loving you. So we thank thank you for this opportunity today, Lord, and for the many blessings that come from it. Use us in a in a mighty and powerful way, both now and in days, weeks, and years to come, Lord. I pray and bless NCS as a movement of men would make a difference in our homes and our communities and our families and friends. And Lord, as we look around and we see the turmoil that's going on in the world, we know that you're sovereign over all. We know that you have a plan. But Lord, we're, we're scared and we pray that peace would prevail, especially in a time of, of war and so much that's unknown and coming at the end of a global pandemic, just so many things to weigh on our minds and worry us for sure. We pray that you would take that, Lord, and we know that you're still in charge despite what anybody says or thinks. And so we just pray again that peace would come about both globally and, and in our hearts, Lord. And as we continue through this uh, weekend, Lord, I just pray your blessing on, on all these guys here today and on their families. And pray this would be a good jump start to a weekend as we have a chance to love you and express our love to you and to love others. And Lord, I just lift up Josiah as he shares what's on his heart today. Pray your blessing on him and give him the words to speak. The message that you've prepared for us to hear today. Right, our father, fellow brothers and sisters that are on the street, and those who are really struggling. So we pray your blessing on our time here. We ask this all in your amazing and powerful name. Amen. With that, welcome Josiah. Looking forward to hearing from you this morning. Let's see. Whoa, man, first try. You are a machine. Usually technology senses my presence and just goes, nope. So the fact that a microphone actually worked right away is already we're off to a good start. Yeah, so it is, it is wonderful to be with you gentlemen this morning. Um, like he said, I did, I did grow up in West Africa, in Cameroon, um, Yaoundé, Cameroon specifically. Um, I was the youngest of four. My parents were in Africa for, uh, they were in Nigeria for 10 years. And then my dad was a bush pilot, so they needed a, a pilot in um, Cameroon. And so he decided to move to Cameroon. But before Nigeria, I don't know if you guys know, but Nigeria is predominantly English speaking, aside from the tribal languages. Cameroon is actually split between English in the north and French uh, to the south. And so we were moving to the French section. So my parents thought it would be a good idea to study French in Switzerland before going on the mission field. Um, and my mom once said that, you know, being the youngest of four, the reason I was born was because their French teacher never did teach them the word for condom. 
so, um, you know, it's, but, but here I am all the same. And now she's, but she's very grateful. She says she's happy that I was born. At least that's what she said last time we spoke. Um, but it was, I'm, you know, it's, it's all, it's all, it's all good. We, <laughs> I, I ended up moving back to Hershey, Pennsylvania when I was uh, a freshman in high school. Um, so Cameroon, Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, no culture shock there. None. It was totally seamless. I don't know if you've ever been to Hershey Chocolate World. That's basically what Cameroon is like. If you've been to Chocolate World, you can say you've been to Cameroon. Totally the same thing. Um, but I got, and then I got married at 19, like you do. You know, I, got, I was dating uh, my best friend, and we decided that it was, we were going to get married. And again, being the youngest of four, my parents, by the time I was coming of age in high school, they were just, they, had, they, didn't, they didn't know I was there, right? <laughs> youngest of four, all my older siblings had gone. And so when I told my parents we were getting married, um, you know, at 19, they didn't blink. But my mom was hoping that we would end up getting to be married maybe down the road. So when we told him we were getting engaged, my mom was like, well, why don't, like, so when's the wedding? Like, you guys thinking like two, three years out? And uh, my wife said, well, we're actually thinking six months from now. And my mom goes, wow, that's, that's fast. Uh, and my sister, uh, older sister spoke up and said, well, well, mom, if you'd prefer, they could just move in together for the next two or three years and then get married. And my mom's like, no, six months is good. Six months is good. Six months is good. So, um, you know, I got, got married uh, 19. We've been married ever since. Um, so coming on 17 years um, in September. And we have two children. My daughter is uh, named Eden. Uh, she turns 10 in May. And my son is named Aaron. And he, tur he just turned eight in December. So... Um, it's been quite an adventure um, over these last few years. I started working at City Relief at the age of 24. Um, and I remember Mark was one of the, uh, he walked into our, our, our base in Elizabeth, New Jersey and uh, with his little girl. And I just had this vivid memory of just meeting him and his daughter for the first time and just loving how um, engaged in the mission he was. And so we became very fast friends. But, you know, I, I worked as an outreach leader. I didn't you don't, you don't plan on working as an outreach leader. I don't know if any of you guys like ever look at your career path. You're not like, oh, you know what I want to be one day? I'm going to drive a bus into the city of New York City or Newark or Patterson and serve soup to homeless people. That's what I'm going to do. Um, I just haven't met anyone, you know, I mean, aside from Mark's daughter, actually. <laughs> so there's, she's the only one. Everybody else is like, no, I'm, I'm good. We're, we're good. Um, so I, didn't, I never planned to do that. It wasn't part of the, there wasn't some grand scheme. Um, I wasn't planned to be promoted to be outreach director after being there for three months. Um, I was the youngest person on staff. I'd been volunteering the least amount of time. But, um, you know, that's, it's, it's kind of like when someone asks for a volunteer and you're in a line and everybody else steps back and you're just the one standing still and you look around and you've been selected. Um, that was kind of how it felt a little bit at the beginning. And... I told Juan Galloway at the time, I was like, look, I'm already 500 feet underwater, so another 500 feet will make a big difference, you know. Um, so, you know, doing that, working in the streets has, has been amazing. Um, I just love the people. Um, I love engaging with the homeless community. I think my background in Africa and Hershey and, uh, like, I've, you know, Starbucks uh, has prepared me to engage and connect with lots of different people, which is helpful because there is no single homeless person stereotype. Like there isn't like, like when you've met one homeless person, guess what, you've met one homeless person. Every situation is different. Every story is different. I know we as a society often kind of lump them together into like this one common sort of 
image in our heads, um, but it's just not true. They're, every person comes from a different background. And so learning to find them and meet them where they are really is like half the battle and engaging them in that meaningful way. Um, I should mention for, for those of you, there's probably a few of you, maybe not many, but there's maybe a few people here who don't know what City Relief is or does. And um, we are a mobile outreach program that goes into the streets. We have retrofitted school buses and we, set, we basically throw block parties. We basically throw parties on the sidewalk. Um, we share a meal with our friends who are experiencing homelessness with the goal of getting to connect them to a next step. Because um, you know, when Richard and Dixie Galloway founded the organization in 1989, they had this vision of, you know, right out of Isaiah 58, to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And they wanted to be the connection point between the need and the resources. And so that's what they started. And that is what we are still doing. We are doubling down on that going forward. And we are able to help people in the street get connected um, by leveraging trust in a meal and a new pair of socks as the connection point. We are then able to bring people to a place where we can help them move forward. But again, I, like I said, I, this wasn't something I planned on, right? And now I'm the CEO, which is also not something I planned on. Um, again, that's not something you know I was I was envisioning when I started ten years ago, when I was making soup and you know mopping floors. Um, and so I had you know I, the, the, I was watching The Matrix recently. Anybody seen seen the original Matrix? There's that line where Morpheus says to Neo, "You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he's expecting to wake up." And I feel like that's been my last four weeks. <laughs> Every time I look at myself in the mirror, I'm like, oh, I have the look of a man who accepts what I see because I'm expecting to wake up. Um, because again, when you're following Jesus, you just never know where you're gonna land. Like just Jesus has no seemingly, like he has no problem sending us on wild, what feels like wild goose chases. And the mistake I made, the mistake I made was thinking that G, that 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 Jesus was not like, I, I started saying yes to Jesus. That was my mistake. And by mistake, I mean, that's what led me to where I am. Because following Jesus is never boring if you're actually doing what he says. And the reality is the adventure of following Jesus is something unlike anything else. I, if you're a bored Christian, I would challenge you to consider what, what, what you're reading and what you're following. Because following Jesus is not gonna be, he's not a boring God. He's not a boring leader. He's not gonna like, like lead you into obscurity. I mean, he can, but usually that, that season of obscurity is for another purpose in some other way. He's just always like bringing things together and, 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 and making things new and introducing people to, to folks and helping people and bringing redemption. But I think part of the problem um, that I've seen, especially with, with people in the street and when we help them and we're trying to point them to Jesus and we're trying to help them understand Jesus and we're also trying to help our volunteers understand Jesus, is that there's a, there's a huge trust gap. There's a huge trust gap. There was one time we were um, pulling our outreach vehicle into West Harlem um, on 145th Street and we set up there on the sidewalk and we had um, a number of volunteers with us. And I used to always train our volunteers. And Mark, and some of you may remember hearing me tell you this, that as an organization, we do not want to distribute our leftovers to the less fortunate. We want to break bread with our brothers and sisters. So when we pull up, I would tell our volunteers, hey, we've just made a bunch of soup, but the soup is just as much for you as it is for the people we serve. 
Because the fact is, is that you know, there's a difference between going into an outreach experience where you're condescending down to people and you're handing down to someone rather than sitting at a table across from someone and the dynamic that gets created in that interaction. Which is why if you've ever been on the relief bus, you'll notice there's a pit, there's that well that you kind of have to climb down into to serve, trying not to break your neck or spill soup all over yourself. Um, and the reason we have that is so that we can look people in the eye while we serve them. Because again, if we follow Jesus, if we believe that Jesus meant what he said in Matthew 25, then when we serve one of the least of these brothers and sisters of Christ, we are actually in some, tra some transformational way engaging with Christ himself. Which means that these people are not in need of our pity. They are not in need of our generosity. They are not in, in need of our you know, condescension. They are in need of our gratitude. Because if that person reflects Christ, if that person is incarnate example of the sacrifice that Jesus made, then we're not just serving down to someone in need, we're actually experiencing the risen Lord in physical form, which means that we need to have a different posture towards that person. And so we would always train our volunteers to eat the soup and, and share the food. And when I, we got out, all our volunteers, they're very good at following directions for the most part. Volunteers, if they, they, especially if you have like a badge on that makes you look official, they'll do whatever you say because they're like, I don't know what's going on. Uh, Josiah said I should do this. I'm just, you know, I'm just sweeping here. I'm you know, working on my curling game, you know. So I, um, and these volunteers did what they said. They got out, got a cup of soup, and they were sitting down and eating with our friends. And I remember there was a guy who was standing against the wall with his arms crossed like this for like 30 minutes. And as an outreach leader, I was like, oh man, is this guy a cop? That could be problematic for me. Uh, the, the worst thing for an outreach is when people get thrown up against the wall and put in handcuffs. That's very inconvenient. Turns out people don't like to hang around when the police are arresting folks. So this guy is leaning up against the wall with his arm crossed. Turns out he wasn't a cop, but he approached me and he, after about 30 minutes and he said, hey, I need some help. And I was like, all right, well, you need some, what, what can I help you with? And he said, well, before I ask for help, I want you to know that I watched. I watched as your volunteers got out of the bus and made their way to the, the window and got the soup and were eating it. And he said, I was not going to ask for help because I don't want help from someone who thinks they're better than me. I just had a bad run. I lost my job. Family fell apart. Livelihood fell apart. And I'm really sick and tired of homeless services treating me like I'm a piece of crap. And he said, so the fact that your volunteers were, are eating what they're serving, it proved to me that you guys are legit and I can ask you for help. And I, the point I want to make with that is that I don't think it's just homeless people who have a trust gap issue. I think right now we're living in an age where Christianity and the message of Jesus is being impeded because of a trust gap. Because people all around us, our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues, our kids, they're standing against the wall with their arms crossed and they're watching. And the question I have is, what are we doing to show them that Jesus is real and that God is alive and has a plan for them? And, and, and not tell them, but show them so that they will then have the courage to come and ask for help. I think, you know, another part of the problem is that, um, you know, this, for, the, for homeless people, it's, it's pretty simple. It's, dis, it's despair. For homeless folks, I've met so many people who come from, you know, trauma, you know, abuse. Um, I've met, uh, I met one guy who was told by 
uh, his mom that, you know, he had to pack his bags at 13 because her boyfriend said she had to choose between him or her son. And she chose the boyfriend. And the son ended up in the street. 30 years later, I'm meeting him, trying to connect him to a rehab program because he has a drinking problem. And I'm going, duh, of course he has a drinking problem. The trauma of that kind of experience can, like the, the shock waves of being discarded by the one person in the world who's supposed to protect you, that is traumatic and that is long lasting effects. And when you look at those people and you say, oh, they're service resistant, they don't want help. The truth is that it's not that they don't want help, it's that they're sick and tired of being denied help. They've tried for help. The line between despair and disinterest is very blurry. So when you see that guy on the street who's like, oh man, that guy, he doesn't want help. I tried to offer him something and he told me to kick rocks. Like, well, maybe he told you to kick rocks because he assumed that like everyone else who he's asked for help, he'd been rejected. And at what point in our lives, how can we ask ourselves the question, at what point in our lives do we say, you know what, I've tried this long enough, it's better to, be reje it's better to not try than be rejected again. And I think that goes, I think it's the same thing with the world. I think there's a lot of young people and a lot of people in churches and a lot of people around us who are looking at Christians going, why should I bother trying? I tried, it didn't work. I, I, you know, we're, they're watching us and they're saying that's fake. There's hypocrisy. There's, I mean, again, I know we're all broken, but, but what are we putting out into the world that will either affirm the lies that Jesus is not alive or that will affirm the truth that he is? And I think... Another issue that we run into is that most of us, or many, I'll just speak for myself, I often operate as a functional atheist. I don't mean to, I, I believe that Jesus is Lord, I believe that he rose from the dead, but I gotta tell you, if you looked at my decision making every day, I'm not consulting the God of the universe on what I should wear or what I should go, you know, what I should eat or how I should interact with my kids. I'm not, I'm not living every day. I'm largely making decisions as if God is not real. And I just have to be honest about that. And uh, I, I remember this, this came very vividly to me when my daughter was three years old. Um, we had two dogs at the time. Um, one was a beagle. His name was Hector from Prince Hector of Troy. Um, my wife wouldn't let me name him Achilles, so I named him Hector. We compromised. Compromise. We compromised. Um, so we had him for a long time, and he was, uh, we, we loved that dog. He was, but, but when my daughter was three, my son was one, and my son was crawling around the floor, and um, my, my dog got sick. He got a pituitary problem and started peeing compulsively, like drinking out of the toilet, peeing. Drink, like he's literally like sitting there watching us while he's peeing, like, guys, I don't, I, I, I got nothing. I, I can't. I, like, you know, like you want to be mad at him, but you can't because he's just like, sorry, I can't control what's going on anymore. I mean, you have any ideas? I got no ideas, you know. Um, so we reached a point where we had to make the unfortunate decision where we had to put him down because, in, in, you know, kids, dog, kids, dog. I mean, we wrestled, we wrestled, we wrestled, you know. Um, but, you know, in the end, I think the Lord's spirit won out and we didn't put our kids down. Okay, come on, that's a joke. But we took my dog to, we were gonna take my dog to the pound, not the pound, I guess, they don't have those anymore. Uh, we were gonna take our dog to the, the shelter, and, or the, I don't know what it's called. And I, but I wanted, we wanted to prepare my daughter, because she was three and she was old enough to understand something. So I, we tucked her in for her nap. We got a babysitter to watch the kids uh, while they slept, so my wife and I could do the deed. And um, 
I'm tucking my daughter into, into, in for a nap. I'm like, okay, hey, babe, I'm, I just need to tell you, um, your mama and I, we're going to be taking Hector, uh, and he's going to go to be with Jesus. Like you do, right? That's what you would tell. I, I, I don't know. I've never done this before. It's my first kid, my first daughter. What am I going to do? But I'm making this up. So I say, I'm, we're going to take, take Hector to be with Jesus. And my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, my precious firstborn, her eyes get huge. And she goes, no, no. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a disproportionate response. Like, like okay, sure, you kind of like the dog. But this is, this is over the top. And she, but then she went on. She goes, you can't go be with Jesus. And I was like, oh, <laughs> she thought my wife and I were going with Hector to be with Jesus together. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a miscommunication. I dropped the ball there. So you can't be with Jesus. And then in a moment of brilliant honesty, she says, Jesus is just pretend anyway. And it hit me that my, you know, that in my three-year-old daughter's world, she thought Jesus was just pretend because that's how she interacted with Jesus, much like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or, or whatever. And it got me thinking about myself and it got me thinking about the people I work with and it got me thinking about Christians in general of how many of us, if we were pushed to the line, if the rubber was gonna meet the road, how many of us would actually say, Jesus is just pretend anyway. It's hard though. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's I, I would not have leveraged all of creation on the church, on us. That just seems like poor planning. Um, but God, for some bizarre reason, decided to leverage the kingdom on us. Again, I can't explain why he did that. I don't know why he did it, but he did it, and I'm going to assume that the creator of the cosmos is slightly more intelligent than I am. And, but I think the honesty of my three-year-old daughter was important, and I think that we all have to come face-to-face -face with that in some way. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is when that guy brings his son to Jesus, uh, disciples to be healed and they can't heal him. And then Jesus comes down from the mountain. He's like, what is going on? Like, you guys are just like, what is happening right now? Um, and they're like, we've tried to you know, heal this person, but he can't. And it's dad's like, the, the kid's trying to be throwing himself in the fire. And, and you know, Jesus says, anything is possible for him who believes. And the dad says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And I hear in that sentence the same cry that my daughter put out there. I believe, help me in my unbelief. And I think that we are all in a position where finding a way to believe means acknowledging and facing the reality of the days and hours in our day where we don't believe and where we're functioning as if Jesus is just pretend. And it has lasting implications because, like I said, there are people with their arms crossed standing against the wall saying, what's, like, I'm watching. And I just, I want to encourage you guys this morning that, yes, people are watching. And, yes, the world in many ways is broken. But at the same time, God is no fool. He leveraged all of the kingdom on us. Broken, sinful, fallen, ill-equipped, unprepared, 
CEOs of nonprofits. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I meant all of us, not just me, even though I qualify in all of those categories. Because God is so good at redeeming and bringing good out of brokenness, and, he, and it's, it's almost like that's how he likes to play it. He likes to see situations just go terribly wrong, and then he rips them up and saves the day and then wraps it around the enemy's neck and hangs him with it because he always overplays his hand. So if you're in a situation where you're going, like, I don't know if I'm shining light. I don't know if I'm being a reflection of God's kingdom. I don't know if I'm doing it well enough. I don't know if people are seeing me with their arms crossed or how I can engage. I would just challenge us all to remember that we serve a God who believes in redemption. We serve a God who believes in resurrection. Who, we serve a God who is able to transform lives, even when they seem the most broken. And I would also challenge you to remember that in that space, there's nothing that you've done. There's no sin that you're dealing with. There's no, like, brokenness. There's no, like, error you've made or screw-up you've done that excludes you from the redemptive power of Jesus to be used by God to bring light and salt into this world. You are equipped to do what God has called you to do. You have what you need to be salt and light for the people around you. In Matthew 5, it says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is it if the salt has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You, NCS, are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Again, who is watching you with their arms crossed? Who is in your circle of influence that is skeptical and frustrated and angry and lost that you don't have to say a word to, but who you can demonstrate the generosity of a God who loves us as we are and not as we should be, to quote Brennan Manning. God is counting on us to prove that he is real by the way we live and love. What is one good thing that you can do differently today that will overcome that trust gap? And maybe you're here and you're feeling like, you know, maybe you're having one of those days where Jesus is just pretend. Jesus is just pretend. I wanna encourage you that God accepts people and gives healing to people who need help with their unbelief. And that includes you as well, and includes me. You are not, like, the Holy Spirit is going, is, welcomes us even in our unbelief. And as long as we can be honest and pray, Jesus, help us in our unbelief. Amen? Anyway, let's uh, uh, close in prayer. Just bless our brother. Lord in heaven, thank you so much for Josiah, for his commitment to you, for City Relief. And we just bless him in his new position, Lord, and we just pray that you would take City Relief to the next level, Father, whatever that takes, whatever you call him to. Put your hand on him and those that volunteer. 
And we're so grateful to have him on our team. And we are so grateful to be part of that team. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.